we're going to find that, uh, you know, today when you speak to a historical scholar who is anti-Christian in his worldview, if you quote from the Apostle John as to what the Apostle John claims Jesus to have said, he will say, well, we don't know if Jesus really said that. That's probably just a legend. Yet then again, this scholar will turn around and quote from someone like Plato. We're going to find that when he does that, he's being intellectually dishonest because he's ex ex uh, accepting the writings of Plato as being historical, yet he judges the New Testament manuscripts by a much stricter test when he claims that the New Testament manuscripts are not historically reliable. When we talk about the reliability of New Testament manuscripts, again, we're not proving the New Testament to be God's word. That will come at a later time. But right now, we want to just show that they're historically reliable. They are not legends. They were written by the men who claimed... Uh, they were written by eyewitnesses who knew Jesus Christ, and they are historically reliable. Later on, we'll argue that they actually do represent the words of God. In fact, they are the words of God. We're going to look at five different pieces of evidence. Five different pieces of evidence. If you're taking notes, which you should be, uh, just leave half a page for each one of these sections. But the first is manuscript evidence. We're going to look at the manuscript evidence of the New Testament to show that they're reliable. Then we're going to look at the writings of the church, early church fathers. Manuscript evidence, the writings of the early church fathers. Then number three, we're going to look at the writings of secular historians, secular writings, ancient secular writings. And number four, we're going to look at ancient creeds in the New Testament, creeds or hymns which predate the New Testament itself. And then number five, we're going to see what the experts say about the New Testament and its reliability. So let's take a look at the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts. First, let's look at manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence. Today, in existence, there are over 24,000 ancient copies of the New Testament, ancient copies of, of at least some portion of the New Testament, over 24,000. Plato's Tetralogies, the compilation of his writings, we only have seven copies. So when that historical scholar says, we don't know that Jesus really said that, and then he turns around and says what Plato said, or what Socrates said, because Socrates was like Jesus, he never wrote anything. Uh, but his follower Plato recorded his teachings. But this gentleman will say, no, we know what Plato said, we don't know what Jesus said. But Plato only has seven copies, the New Testament has 24,000 copies. Now, out of all ancient writings, Homer's Iliad finishes in second place to the New Testament. Rather than 24,000 copies in existence today, Homer's Iliad only has 643. So let's compare those three on these tests. 
The New Testament manuscript, New Testament manuscript copies, there's 24,000. Plato's Tetralogies, there's only seven. Second place comes Homer's Iliad, 643. It's not even close. But what about the earliest copy? Is the earliest copy, how close is it to the when the original was supposedly written? Well, just between 25 and 30 years after the original, we have the John Rylands papyri, which is a portion of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18. So now we see that with the New Testament, it's only 25 to 30 years after the original we have the earliest copy. What about Plato's Tetralogies? And some people say, wow, 25 years, that's a long time period. Well, Plato's Tetralogy, we don't have a copy of Plato's writings. The earliest copy, the oldest copy we have, dates to about 1,200 years after the original was supposedly written. Now, we've got a 1,200-year gap where corruptions could take place, whereas with the New Testament, we only have a 25-year gap. With Homer's Iliad, which is second best again to the New Testament, you have still a gap of 500 years before there's a portion of it copied, the earliest copy. So again, the New Testament is by far superior, only 25 years after the original. And then the accuracy, the accuracy rating. With the New Testament manuscripts, when you compare these 24,000 copies, you find there's a 99.5% accuracy, 99.5% agreement. The only areas where there's disagreement are a different way to spell the name. As time goes on, they change the way to spell different names, name of a city, name of a person, or an error in grammar, grammar or an error in spelling, or an error in punctuation. Uh, but what you do not find is any errors in doctrine. In other words, whether you pick up, if, if you correctly interpret the Bible as teaching that Jesus is God, you'll get that from the New King James Version, you'll get it from the King James Version, the NIV, uh, the New American Standard Bible, the Revised Standard Version, despite the fact that some of these Bibles use different manuscripts than the other ones use. So the accuracy, the agreement, is 99.5% agreement. What about Plato's Tetralogies? We don't know, because all we have is seven copies, and they were probably copied from the same manuscript, so it's not even enough for people to compare. What about Homer's Iliad? Again, it's second place, and it's 95% accuracy, which is much lower than 99.5% accuracy. In other words, there's only one disagreement uh, out of every 200 uh, words. There'd only be one one word in question out of New Testament manuscripts with Homer's Iliad you would have 10 in question out of every 200 words which would mean that the New Testament is 10 times more accurate than Homer's Iliad which is in second place so the New Testament is by far superior when you compare manuscript evidence so if the secular historian wants to quote from Plato he better let us quote from the Apostle John if he wants to talk about what Socrates supposedly said, then he better let us talk about what Jesus Christ has said. New Testament is, has more numerous copies, earlier copies, copies that are closer to the original, and there's uh, much higher accuracy. 
Now, let's discuss very briefly some famous New Testament manuscripts. Some famous New Testament manuscripts. There's the John Rylands papyri that we already mentioned, a portion of John chapter 18, which dates back to about 125 to 130 A.D. 135 to 130 A.D., John Rylands papyri. There's the Bodmer papyrus II. The Bodmer papyrus II, which dates back from 150 to 200 A.D., which contains most of John's, most of the Apostle John's gospel. Very significant, because John makes some bold claims. Uh, he uh, records Jesus as making bold claims to being God in the flesh and the only Savior of mankind, and yet we have very good, solid evidence between 150 to 200 A.D. copies with containing most of John's Gospel. Then we have the Chester Beatty Papyri, very important manuscripts. The Chester Beatty Papyri dating to about 200 A.D., only about 100 years after the Bible was completed, and this contains major, the New Testament was completed, this contains major portions of the New Testament. Then you have Codex Vaticanus, which contains almost the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, dating back to about 325 to 350 A.D. Codex Vaticanus, 325 to 350 A.D. And you have Codex Sinaiticus, which dates at about 350 A.D., which contains almost all of the New Testament and half of the Old Testament. So that's Codex uh, Sinaiticus, 350 A.D., almost all the New Testament and half of the Old Testament. You have Codex Alexandrinus. Codex Alexandrinus contains almost the entire Bible, and that's about 400 A.D. And then Codex, uh, 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 let me see, Codex Ephremi. That's the best attempt I'm going to give to pronounce it. Codex Ephremi, uh, 400s A.D. Almost every New Testament book contains at least a portion of almost every New Testament book. Codex Ephremi. And so, what is the conclusion of the manuscript evidence? The conclusion is that the New Testament manuscripts are by far the most reliable of all ancient works. Let me repeat that. The New Testament manuscripts are by far the most reliable of all ancient works. A historical scholar is free to say, well, we don't have the original, so let's throw out the New Testament manuscripts. Fine. But if you're going to throw out the New Testament manuscripts, Homer's Iliad goes down a tube, Plato's Tetralogy goes down a tube, and every piece of ancient literature goes down the tubes as well. And no one wants to do that. So the New Testament manuscripts are the most reliable of all ancient works. Point number two of evidence. We've already discussed the manuscript evidence. Point number two is the early church fathers. You see, the early church fathers quoted from the New Testament showing that the New Testament was already in existence and considered to be God's word by the church by the dates that they lived and wrote in. They quoted from the New Testament and they taught the exact things that the liberals, you know, when the liberals pull passages out when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, the liberals say, yeah, yeah, Jesus really said that. But when he says, uh, I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. When he says, I'm God in the flesh, they say, no, no, he never really said it. That's a legend that came later. But these early church fathers, some of them who were pupils of the apostles themselves, 
and died as martyrs for the faith. They died, they shed their blood, they were persecuted and martyred believing this. They quoted the New Testament and they taught the deity of Christ, that Jesus claimed to be God. They taught salvation only comes through him. They taught that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And they also taught that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead. And so they taught the exact things. We have tremendous evidence that this was the teachings. This is reliable, historical evidence to show that Jesus Christ taught these things and that the apostolic message, whether it's true or not, that's irrelevant at this point. We'll find out later. But the apostolic message is not legends. The apostles, the eyewitnesses of new Christ, they taught that Jesus is God, that he is the only way for man to be saved, that uh, Christ died on the cross for our sins, and that he bodily rose from the dead. Let's take a look at the writings of Clement of Rome and his letter to the Corinthians in 95 AD. And I'm going to be reading some quotes that I jotted down. It's it's taken from the Apostolic Fathers by J.B. Lightfoot and J.R. Armour, published by Baker Bookhouse. But it was my doctoral dissertation in the defense of biblical Christianity when I worked on my doctor of ministry degree for Bethany Theological Seminary. And Clement of Rome wrote his letter to the Corinthians in 95 A.D. The Apostle John was probably still alive. And he was, Clement of Rome was a leader in the early church. Now listen to some of the statements that he wrote. He wrote this. Let us fear the Lord, so he's calling Jesus God. He's not saying, just calling Jesus Lord like a master or sir. He's saying, let us fear the Lord Christ, whose blood was given for us. Jesus died for us. He also stated, the apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent forth from God. Doesn't sound like he thought in his day that the New Testament was legends. Clement the Rome also in 95 AD in his letter to the Corinthians wrote this. He made the Lord Jesus Christ the first fruit when he raised him from the dead. Now you tell me that our scholars of today know more about what belongs in the Bible and what doesn't belong there than Clement the Rome. Our scholars today say, no, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That was a legend that came a couple hundred years later. That's bogus. Clement of Rome recognized that Jesus was raised from the dead in 95 AD. And he was the bishop in Rome. He was the bishop of the Roman Christians. When he referred to Jesus as the Lord, he was calling him God. He recognized that Jesus' blood was given for us and that he was raised from the dead. What about Ignatius? Ignatius wrote between 110 and 115 A.D. He was the bishop of Antioch. If what he was teaching, eyewitnesses who knew Jesus were still alive, and if he was teaching bogus doctrine, they would have kicked him out. But he was the bishop of Antioch, and he wrote his letters between 110 and 115 A.D. Now listen to what Ignatius writes. I'm going to give some quotes from him. Jesus Christ, our God. Deity of Christ. He states, There is only one physician, God and man, Son of Mary and Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He states this, 
There is one God who manifested himself through Jesus Christ, his son. Ignatius says this, our God, Jesus Christ. He states this, I give glory to Jesus Christ, the God who bestowed such wisdom upon you. So he obviously taught that Jesus Christ is God. He also referred to Christ as this, Christ Jesus, our Savior. He stated Jesus Christ who dies for us, that believing on his death, ye might escape death. He states, he is truly of the race of David according to the flesh, but son of God by the divine will and power, truly born of a virgin. He says, be ye deaf, therefore, then any man speaketh to you apart from Jesus Christ, who was born of the race of David, who was the son of Mary, who was truly born and ate and drank, was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was truly crucified and died in the sight of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, who moreover was truly raised from the dead, his father having raised him. So only 15 years after the death of the last of the apostles, the apostle John, we see that the central doctrines of the New Testament were already being taught. Now another early church leader was Polycarp, who lived from 70 to 156 A.D. He was the bishop of Smyrna, and more importantly was a personal pupil of the apostle John. Now, he was sincere about his beliefs because he died for the faith. He was a martyr who died for the faith. Now, had any of these church leaders, Clement of Rome or Ignatius, perverted the true teachings of the apostles, Polycarp would have corrected it. He was sincere about his beliefs and he got his teachings right from the apostle John. Yet, instead of correcting them, he voiced the same beliefs. Look at what he writes in his letter letter to the Philippians. Remember, he lived from 70 to 156 B.C., A.D., and he was a pupil of the Apostle John. He writes, Let us therefore without ceasing, ceasing hold fast by our hope and by the earnest of our righteousness, which is Jesus Christ, who took up our sins in his body upon the tree, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, but for our sakes he endured all things that we might live in him. He states this, For they love not the present world, but him that died for our sakes and was raised by God for us. And then he writes this, Who shall believe on our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, and on his Father that raised him from the dead. And so Polycarp, in his letter to the Philippians, taught salvation only through Christ, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and the deity of Christ. Another student of the Apostle John was Papias, the bishop, of uh, Hierapolis and Papias was born between 60 and 70 AD and he died between 130 and 140 AD. Now he stated some very interesting things. He stated that he did not accept the words of any self-proclaimed teacher. Rather, he would talk to others who, like himself, had known at least one of the original apostles. And this way he could get the truths taught by Christ from the closest possible sources rather than rely on hearsay testimony. Uh, Papias speaks of his discussions with persons who spoke with such apostles as Andrew, Peter, Philip, Thomas, James, John, or Matthew. Uh, Papias also stated that Mark got the information for his gospel from the apostle Peter himself, and that Matthew originally recorded his gospel in Hebrew, but it was later translated into Greek.
Now, one of the conclusions that can be drawn after reading these accounts, in my doctoral dissertation, I draw five conclusions from the early church fathers. That is, number one, they form an unbroken chain from the apostles to their day. Number two, they were people who personally knew the apostles and accepted the leadership. There were people who personally knew the apostles and accepted the leadership of these four men. Number three, these four men taught essentially the same things as the New Testament of today. Number four, these men were willing to die for their teachings that they said had been passed down to them from the apostles, so they were sincere about their belief. And number four, therefore the New Testament we have today represents essentially the teachings of the apostles, especially in the areas of the resurrection and deity of Christ, not to mention salvation only through Christ and the teaching that Christ died on the cross for our sins. And so that's the evidence of the early church fathers. The fact is that the early church fathers quoted from the New Testament and they taught the deity of Christ. They taught the deity of Christ, salvation only through Christ. They taught that Christ died on the cross for our sins and that Christ was bodily risen from the dead. So we have evidence for the exact things, those exact things that the liberals throw out of the Bible, we have overwhelming historical evidence to show that that was the teaching of the apostles. So it wasn't legends, either the apostles were lying or they were deceived or they were telling the truth, and we'll talk about that in the next lecture when we talk about the resurrection. Manuscript evidence shows the New Testament manuscripts most reliable of all ancient works and the early church fathers confirmed the message that we have in the New Testament today was the message of the apostles, the uh, eyewitnesses that knew Jesus Christ. What about the secular writings, secular historians and secular writers, non-Christian writers? These non-Christian writers also confirm the early church message. Non-Christian writers also confirm the uh, early church message. Look at Thallus. Take a look at Thallus, who wrote about 52 A.D. Now, in speaking about Jesus' crucifixion, this is what Thallus wrote in 52 A.D. Africanus is reporting this. A later historian is reporting what Thallus wrote. And he writes this, Thallus in the third book of histories explains away the darkness as an eclipse of the sun, unreasonably as it seems to me. Now Africanus is speaking about Jesus' Jesus's crucifixion and the darkness that covered the land during this event, and he states that Thallus in 52 AD, about 20 years after the crucifixion, uh, historians uh, like Thallus were still trying to explain away some of the miraculous aspects of Christ's life and he points to the crucifixion of Christ. What about the Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus, who was writing in 115 A.D.? He's referred to as the greatest historian of ancient Rome. What does he write? He writes this, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered, he's talking about Christians, and then he talks about Christ, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty 
during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, that's the Christian faith, he refers to it as a superstition, thus checked for the moment at the death of Christ, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Why? Because for 50 days after the death of Christ, the gospel didn't spread until Pentecost. Ten days after the ascension, then it spread out again. He writes later, Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Mockery of every sort was added to their death. So people being persecuted and killed for the faith in, their faith in Christ. Look at Suetonius. Suetonius, who wrote between 117 A.D. 117 A.D. and 138 A.D. So we'll look at the writings of Suetonius. If I define it, by the way, I'm reading from Dr. Gary Habermas, one of my teachers and professor, the chairman of the philosophy department at Liberty University in Virginia. And uh, he's got a work, The Ancient Evidence for the Life of Jesus. I believe now it's the verdict of history. Uh, but Suetonius, another Roman historian, uh, wrote between 117 and 138 A.D. He writes about Christ and he says this, because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from the city. And so apparently there's Jews there that were Christians, and because of the teachings of Christ, Nero uh, kicked them out of Rome. Second reference from Suetonius about Christ states this, After the great fire at Rome, punishments were also inflicted on the Christians, a sect professing a new and mischievous religious belief. Now, how can it be a new and mischievous religious belief if they're just teaching salvation by works, which is what the liberals today tell us? What about Pliny the Younger? Pliny the Younger a uh, Roman author and government and uh, who also served as governor of uh, Bithynia in Asia Minor. Pliny the Younger was the nephew and adopted son of a uh, natural historian known as Pliny the Elder. Now, Pliny the Younger wrote in 112 AD and he writes this about the early Christians. They, meaning the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. So in 112 AD, he's saying Christians were already worshiping Jesus as God. How do you get a legend that developed just 12 years after the Apostle John's death while Polycarp, a pupil of John, and Papias, or Papias, another pupil of John, are still alive and leaders in the early church? How do you get legends that Jesus is God? And then he says, and then uh, reassembled to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. What he talking? He's talking about bread and wine. Celebrating the Lord's Supper. Pliny the Younger. What about Emperor Trajan, the Roman Emperor Trajan, writing in 112 A.D.? He's talking about... Uh, he's responding to Pliny the Younger, and he's talking about what, how we should partake of persecuting Christians and he writes this 
When the party denies himself to be a Christian and shall give proof that he is not, that is, by adoring our gods, he shall be pardoned on the ground of repentance, even though he may have formally incurred suspicion. In other words, if they reject Christ and worship the false gods of Rome, we won't kill the guy. So that's Emperor Trajan. Emperor uh, Hadrian, the Roman Emperor Hadrian, was writing between 117 and 138 A.D. Uh, he writes this, I do not wish, therefore, that the matter should be passed by without examination, so that these men may neither be harassed nor opportunity of malicious proceedings be offered to informers. If, therefore, the, prov the provincials can clearly evince their charges against the Christians, so as to answer before the tribunal, let them pursue this course only, but not by mere petitions and mere outcries against the Christians. For it is far more proper if anyone would bring an accusation that you should examine it. In other words, Hadrian's explained that uh, you've got to examine the evidence first, and if they're found guilty, then they are to be punished for the charge. But don't just accept uh, bogus reports, examine the evidence, but it reports to persecution of the Christians. Then the Jewish Talmud, written between 70 and 200 A.D., written between 70 and 200 A.D., contains the teachings of the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, the enemies of the Christian faith, the Jewish rabbis, and what did they write about? Well, uh, between 70 and A.D. in the Jewish Talmud, it writes this, On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, which is, uh, means Joshua, we would call it Joshua, which is Hebrew for Jesus, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. Another uh, term for crucifixion. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. Then it states, but since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of Passover. Well, why? They wanted to stone him, but they knew the people would rebel, so they turned him over to the Romans and tried him for treason and crucified him. But it says that on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. Now also, in the Jewish Talmud, in the Jewish Talmud, Jesus Christ is referred to as a sorcerer. He's referred to, it says, that Jesus was judged by the Jews to be guilty of sorcery. Uh, and in fact, it's in the same passage that he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. So they couldn't explain away the miraculous elements of Christ's life, so they said that he was guilty of sorcery. But they couldn't explain away even the enemies of Christ called Jesus a sorcerer. They also accused them elsewhere in the Talmud of being illegitimate, which means that they probably were aware that there was a, a, a teaching going on that Jesus was born of a virgin and that Joseph was not his actual biological father. And so even the enemies of the Jews 
write down uh, that Jesus Christ, there were supernatural elements to his life. He was crucified on the eve of Passover and that uh, Joseph was not his father. And that's the enemies of the Christian uh, gospel, the early Jewish leaders. And then what about Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived from 37 A.D. to 97 A.D.? Josephus, the Jewish historian, in his antiquities, one of his major historical works, he wrote the history of the Jews for the Romans. He was a Pharisee. He writes this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. He appeared to them alive again, after it talks about his crucifixion and, and death, he appeared to them alive again the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And so here you have Josephus recording about Jesus Christ. Now some people reject this and say, well, if he wasn't a Christian, why did he write that way? And Josephus recorded, if he would talk to eyewitnesses, he would write down exactly what they said. The more spectacular, the better. It made for better reading. And if you read his writings, it sounds that way. But there's some who object to that, but they accept this other reading, which was found in an Aramaic work. You see, one of these two is a perversion. The textual evidence supports the reading that I just read, but we'll read the other one. We'll give the skeptics the... Uh, the uh, uh, but we'll, we'll just give them what they want. We'll take the second reading. And it reads like this. In another manuscript, uh, which is an isolated manuscript, the evidence, the manuscript evidence actually supports the first one, but it's, the other one reads it this way. At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Now, some people think the first one where it talks about Jesus being the Christ and that he did rise, they think that they're a Christian uh, perverted Josephus teachings and then they would hold that the second one here is the true what Josephus wrote but even if it is he's still reporting that the first generation Christians remember Josephus lived from 37 AD to 97 AD he was a Pharisee he recorded that the first the first generation the apostolic church taught that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and that he was the Messiah, and that he uh, fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, and that he was a miracle worker. And so even if you take the weaker form there, you still end up with uh, Josephus recording that, yeah, what's in the New Testament in the 20th century is exactly what the apostles were teaching in the first century. And so that's uh, Josephus. Uh, then I'll just throw in Lucian from the second century, between 100 and uh, 
Lucian wrote from well, between 100 and 200 A.D. And he says, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. Later on, he says, They are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. In other words, they're willing to die for the faith. Talks about that they worship the crucified sage, means the crucified wise man, and live after his laws. So again, another report about the early Christians. In short, what is it? The secular writings confirm that the the early church message. They confirm that the early church was teaching what they claimed uh, to teach. And so we can see from these. Uh, early writings we can see from these early writings the exact things that are being taught uh, by the early church fathers that the first generation Christians believe that Jesus is God that salvation comes only through him that he died on the cross for our sins and that he bodily rose from the dead and appeared to many eyewitnesses and so the test of manuscript evidence supports the New Testament. The early church fathers supports the New Testament. And the secular historian's writings supports the New Testament. Also, we have ancient creeds found in the New Testament. What these ancient creeds are is basically there's creeds in the New Testament that read real rough in the Greek. But when you translate them back into the Aramaic, they flow like a, like a poem or like a creed or an ancient hymn. And many people in the early church, because they didn't have access to Bibles like we do, uh, they would teach central teachings of the Christian faith, make a little statement of faith and put it in a form of a hymn or a creed and they would repeat them at church. Now even liberals today, even the most liberal of scholars today, recognize that Paul's writings date back to the 50s and the 60s A.D. So let's take some creeds that the Apostle Paul taught. Romans 10.9, Paul taught this creed. If you believe in your... He taught this creed. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That teaches the deity of Christ, Jesus is Lord, and... Uh, the bodily resurrection of Christ, that God raised them from the dead. You also find 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 8. The Apostle Paul states this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, what he received from the Apostles, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Uh, even the most liberal scholars recognize that 1 Corinthians was written about 52 to 56 A.D. and they recognized that for this to have been a creed in the Aramaic it would have taken a few years to form it up and to put it in poetic form 
would be widespread among the churches for the Apostle Paul to then take it to the Gentile churches. They say it would take at least, if 1 Corinthians 15 was written about 55 AD, it would take at least 15 years. They date this creed back to about 40 AD. Now the question comes up, if Christ didn't really rise from the dead, how did a legend develop in only 10 years? And in fact, only seven or eight years from when Jesus Christ had been crucified. How do you get a legend in seven years? Legends take two or three centuries to develop. Why? Because if the eyewitnesses are still alive, they're going to refute it. They're the authorities. And if the pupils of the eyewitnesses are still alive, they're going to refute it. And if the pupils of the pupils are still alive, they're going to refute it. So it takes at least a century, a full hundred years before these uh, uh, legends just start in embryo form to develop, and then it takes two, three, maybe four hundred years before a full-blown legend. That's how the deification of Buddha occurred. It took about three or four hundred years. It takes a, a, about a hundred years for it to just start, just barely start, but you don't have any full-blown legends till about a couple hundred years later. How you explain a legend uh, occurring in just seven or eight years is beyond me. And then the uh, also Philippians chapter 2, another ancient creed. There's many of them, by the way, in Paul's writings. Philippians chapter 2, another ancient creed, verses 6 to 11. I'll read verse 5 also, but it's just verses 6 to 11, the creed portion. It was said in the early Christian church, probably dates back to about 40 A.D. as well. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then here he goes, he talks this ancient creed. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Jesus Christ existed as God, but he didn't boast about it when he came to earth. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what we have here is the fact that the Ancient creeds found in Paul's writings, which even the liberals date to the 50s and 60s A.D., they admit that the ancient creeds predate Paul's writings by at least 10 years, so you got between 40 and 50 A.D., definitely less than 20 years after the death of Christ on the cross. You already have salvation through Christ being preached, uh, believed by the church as a whole. You have the deity of Christ, Christ being worshipped, you have the bodily resurrection of Christ being taught and the belief that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. When all the evidence is taken in, we find that the experts, the New Testament experts, the historians, A.T. Robinson, Sir William Ramsey, William F. Albright, Sir Frederick Kenyon, Miller Burroughs of Yale, Bruce Metzger, and F.F. Bruce, not all of these gentlemen, by the way, are, are true, true believers, but all of them are experts in their field on history, and archaeological evidence, 
and New Testament manuscripts, and all of them agree that by far the most reliable of all ancient writings is the New Testament manuscripts. And so whether you look at the manuscript evidence, the writings of the early church fathers, the writings of secular historians and secular authors, the ancient creeds in the New Testament, or the experts, the con contemporary experts themselves, no matter where you look, we find that the New Testament manuscripts are the most reliable of all ancient writings. They do not contain legends. Instead, they contain eyewitness testimony. The Old Testament is reliable. The New Testament is reliable. They're not legends. In the next lecture, we'll look at the question, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Thank you, and God bless you.